Our Bible reading comes from the book of Acts today. If you're using this booklet, there is a little uh, a mistake. It's all from Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. First of all, from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And from chapter 2, 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But some sneered and said, They're drunk on new wine. Verse 37 to 47. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. 
and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all of the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as they had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful, sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. Here ends our scripture reading. Open our eyes, open our hearts uh, to hear from you. Help us to learn uh, what you have for us this morning. We pray that you will take away everything and anything that stands in the way right now of us um, being convicted by your Spirit. And I guess we do want to invite your Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds now to reveal your truth to us. So we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. What is the Holy Spirit's purpose? That's really the first question I want to ask today. But before I do, I just want to remind you of where we are at in, our, uh, in, in the Bible story that we've been travelling along. So, um, right back, we're going right back into Genesis, God was physically present with His people. And so, He would walk and talk with Adam, uh, the Bible says, in the cool of the day. And this was their daily pattern. That was what they were created for, to have this relationship with God. And then sin comes into the world. And now the problem is that um, all of Scripture up to about this point has been trying to solve that problem, that there's this chasm, this, uh, this, this gap between us who were created to speak to God face to face and the sin that breaks that. And so this is the big question that the whole of the Old Testament actually wants to answer. How can a holy God, who is pure and righteous, be reunited with His people who are eternally stained by their sin, by their sin that causes this gap to form between God and His people. And so we see this thought developing all throughout the Old Testament uh, as it seeks to answer this question. First, uh, God is going to redeem people through the family line of Abraham. Then we see that that becomes the nation of Israel. And as Israel grows as a people, they are established as a nation with all these sacrifices and, and this whole priestly tabernacle system that was supposed to cleanse them from their sins. So there would be sacrifices they could offer to kind of take away the sins of people. But the problem is that the sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again because people kept on sinning. Their hearts were still hearts of stone. Every time someone sinned, they had to offer a sacrifice. And the priestly system and all that was there. And yet, even though that all existed, God still wasn't physically present with His people. He was in their midst. He lived in the tabernacle, this, this uh, special tent that they had made. But He was inside the Holy of Holies. That's where His presence would dwell, above the Ark of the Covenant, where um, blood would be sprinkled so that God could be present with His people. But you couldn't go into this place. If you did, you would die. And only the high priest, once a year after having atoned for his own sins, would be able to go into this place 
And it was such a terrifying time that the people would tie a cord around his foot so that if he hadn't been properly clean, uh, cleansed from his sin and he died in the face of God, then they could pull him out by the rope. And so even with all these sacrifices, this whole priestly system, God being in the middle of the camp was still separate from his people. Certainly that kind of relationship where God walked and talked with his people simply wasn't there. Then two weeks ago, we preached about, uh, we talked about how Jesus, when he finally comes onto the scene, we realize that all of the, all of the Old Testament has really been pointing to him, has been foreshadowing the work that he had come to do. You know, Christ was the true sacrificial lamb, the true sacrifice for sins, and when he dies, he pays the price for the sin of God's people once and for all. And finally, that gap that existed between us and God no longer exists. Jesus is this kind of great bridge builder that builds this bridge between us and God. And so we looked at when that happens in the Gospels, we see that the curtain that separated God's presence from His people is torn up from top to bottom. God rips it apart and that separation between us and God is broken. And so the resurrected Jesus, having been given then full authority over the earth, says to His disciple, now, now that all of that has happened and now that I have authority over all of the earth, I'm going to give you a new commandment. A, a new commission, if you will. And he gives them the Great Commission and says to them in Matthew uh, 28, um, nope, this one, there we go. So Jesus came near to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember, I am with you always until the very end of the age. And that sounds all good and well, but how does that work? I mean, Jesus is ultimately just one man. Even if his disciples were to go into all the world, they would go in different directions. How can he be present with them always until the very end of the age? And so that is the question that Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, actually answers. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to come and provide power to witness to Christ. Power to fulfill this great commission. So where are the disciples going to get the power to fulfill this commandment? How can they have success in their task of teaching and baptizing and discipling people? How is that going to happen? Well, Acts chapter 4 uh, so chapter 1, verse 4 to 8 gives us the answer. Jesus says, in a few days, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit and you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. And, you. and what does that result in then? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I want to acknowledge here that the work of the Holy Spirit, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is complex. It is not just restricted to providing the apostles with power to, to witness to God. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things in us and through us. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately reveals the truth of God to us and to our hearts. He shows us and convicts us and renews our minds to understand and believe the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit lives in the hearts of believers and confirms and reinforces our faith as we go throughout our lives. He is the one 
that provides us with this assurance of our salvation. He's a helper, a counsellor. He's there to help us along in our Christian walk. He also is the one that, that makes God's Word, the Bible, alive for us, interprets it to our hearts as we need to do it. He's the Spirit of truth. He's the one who gives gifts, spiritual gifts, to the church. But in all of these things, actually what the Holy Spirit is doing is powering the breaking out of Jesus' kingdom here on earth. All of those things that I've just mentioned ultimately either reveal Christ, glorify Christ, point to Christ, make you believe the truth of His Word, give you the power to witness, give your words as you witness to others the power to convince them. All of that is about Jesus' kingdom breaking into the world. And so the Holy Spirit here is, is given to the apostles, to the, to, the, to the early church, to power God's mission, redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. That's ultimately why the Holy Spirit comes, to give us power to witness to Jesus, to change the hearts of those who believe, to live lives that in turn bear witness to the, to the life of Christ and what He's done for us. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses. That's the purpose for which the Holy Spirit comes. Now, friends, that has some pretty, uh, I guess, interesting implications for us. That means that if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And if that's true, then you have His presence in order to witness to Christ. Now notice, that means you can't actually say, yeah, well, I'm not really that good at it. My faith is a private thing. No. The Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can be witnesses, so that we can join with God in this mission of redeeming the world. He is the very presence of Jesus Christ with us. To do what? To be His witnesses and make disciples. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you are given spiritual gifts to build up the church. And so we have to ask the question, how are we doing with that? How convincing is my witness to the world? How well does your life witness to Christ? Now, I think if you're human, you probably feel pretty burdened by that question. Maybe a little bit guilty. Uh, perhaps you've never really shared your faith with anyone before. Perhaps you've tried and the conversation just fell completely flat. And so rather than put yourselves in that awkward position, we just decide not to try again. Or perhaps we have tried and have been faithful, but it has cost you your friendship, it has cost you your relationship with that person, especially in today's day and age. So it's easier to just not bear witness to Jesus and His work. This week we saw a great example of how in Victoria now, in Australia, that is ever more difficult. Not only 
Uh, you're not allowed to say what you believe, but you're also not allowed to hang out with other people who believe things that the world says is, is wrong. You can't hold to traditional Christian values and morals and you can't be with those that hold to traditional biblical Christian values and morals. And so it's just easier not to stick our heads up, look over the fence and say, yes, I want to stand up and be counted for Christ. Perhaps you have seen this Essendon saga and thought the cost to you is too high. I think there's probably somewhere in that, all of us, actually. But we are a church that is committed to making disciples. That is what Jesus commissions his people to do. And so early next year, we're going to be running a series of teaching times where we're going to give people exactly these kinds of skills to help have this conversation uh, without being, you know, that guy. Uh, but if you, if you want to get stuck in right now, I want to recommend a book for you uh, by the author. His name's Sam Chan. And um, you can get this at Kurong if it works. No? Isaac, can you just put up that yellow uh, book for me, please? There we go. So how to talk about Jesus uh, without being that guy. And apologies for this side not working today. This morning when we turned on the projector, it blew up. So, um, yes, we'll try and fix that. But um, we want to equip you to be able to have these kinds of conversations because that is ultimately what Jesus commissions us to do. And that's why the Holy Spirit comes. And so if you want to be a part of that, just hang on to your hats. We will, um, we will be doing that early next year. Uh, and so I leave you with this thought in part one. What did the Holy Spirit come for? What was his purpose? It was to power our witness to Christ. And that's all very good and well. And I think that's right and we should learn from that. But we wouldn't do justice to what's happening at Pentecost if we didn't think about how uh, what happens at Pentecost actually fits into the broader biblical picture, the broader story that God has been telling. So having looked at the Holy Spirit's purpose, I think we need to think about what is the Holy Spirit's place in the big picture story. And so I read here from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different kinds of tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then skipping on a bit down later, um, there's this list of nations from which all the people coming and they're hearing the gospel preached. Um, and uh, they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. So there are at least seven echoes of the Old Testament that I think we need to at least acknowledge. And you wanna, might want to grab your little book and note these down because I'm going to go through them pretty quick fire. Otherwise, we'll be here all of today, which I don't mind, but you might. So um, echo number one is that Pentecost happens at Pentecost. Uh, that might sound like a stupid thing to say, 
But we often miss the fact that Pentecost is an Old Testament feast. It's not actually a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament feast, uh, also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. Now, what would happen is on the day of Pentecost, people would celebrate this great feast in honor of God providing for them nourishment uh, and food for the people. So it happened between the barley harvest and the grain harvest. And this is a feast that celebrates the first fruits of the harvest. It's a way of saying thank you to God that, I guess, kind of you've provided and, and protected us throughout all of the growing season, and now we've seen how good this crop is, and we want to celebrate and thank you for that. And so it's no accident, actually, that the Holy Spirit happens uh, to be poured out on this day, the day of Pentecost, the day when the first fruits of God's provision is being celebrated. You see, God is making a point here. He's saying, I am pouring out my Spirit on this group of believers as the first fruit of the harvest that He came to reap. The day of Pentecost shows us what Christianity is supposed to look like. It is a sign of the harvest that God had come to reap now that Jesus had been resurrected and ascended. And it is a feast that we can celebrate because we know that as they received the Holy Spirit and received power to be His witnesses, so too all believers receive the Holy Spirit and power to be His witnesses. Now there are some things that happen at Pentecost that is different to... uh, to our our normal experience. We tend not to magically start speaking other languages, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But that is true of all of us. If you are a believer, you receive this same Spirit as the the rest of the harvest uh, of, of Pentecost. So that's echo number one. Echo number two is that the Spirit comes in a great rushing wind. Now, we miss this in our English, but in both Hebrew and Greek, Uh, the word for wind and spirit and breath is the same thing. So right here, there is an echo right back to uh, Adam's creation in Genesis, where the spirit, the great wind, so before, uh, when God forms the earth, hovers over the face of the earth. The spirit was there in the first day of creation, and the spirit is here when a whole new era of of redemption history is being created. And not only that, God blows breath into Adam's face to make him a living being, to give him and invest in him a soul, a breath. And so here God is now blowing into the faces and the hearts of people to make them spiritually alive. And we just sang a song about the Holy Spirit living breath of God blow or breathe on us. That's what that's referring to, echo number two. So echo number three is that the prophets, uh, the prophets actually pointed to this event numerous times. And, you know, you can go to uh, Isaiah, as we did with our call to worship. Jeremiah speaks about this. Um, I'm thinking about Ezekiel here, where there's this vision of a great valley of dead bones, and you might be familiar with that. And God knits them together as he, um, as he blows on them. And he says in chapter 36, which happens just before that dry bones coming back to life happens, he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. So God fulfills the promise that he made that one day these hearts, these hard hearts of Israel would be changed into soft hearts of flesh that are truly alive. So that's echo number three. Echo number four is fire. Now fire, all throughout the Old Testament, is a picture of God's presence. So think back to when God reveals uh, himself is going to save Israel. What happens? He comes in a burning bush, a fire bush. Uh, Then when Israel is finally saved out of Egypt, what happens? God travels with them as a pillar of fire, at least during the night. But in both of these instances, God is there in a, in a single physical place. There is, he's maybe with one believer, that is Moses in the burning bush, or he's with his people uh, as this pillar of fire, but he's, he's not in his people, he's not with them physically. And actually where God's presence is, that, that fiery consuming presence is with um, his people, is inside the tabernacle. And if you went in there, you got burnt up. So that was not a good place to be. But look at what happens here. This God fire separates and it alights on each person. And everyone who believes now has a personal relationship with God. Each present person gets his own personal bit, if you like, of the fire, which is quite different to the Old Testament. So that's the first part of the fire. The second part of the fire uh, is that in the Old Testament, the fire was also a symbol of God's purification. Now, this is the kind of fire that burnt you, it hurt you, but it burns away impurities. So God's presence there in the tabernacle and in the temple was so holy that if you entered and you weren't pure, you would be consumed by his burning fire. And there are a few places in the Old Testament that, that show us that that's what happened. But now notice what happens here. There's this fire divides amongst all the people, but what happens? They don't get burnt up. They have already been purified through Jesus' work on the cross. And so this purifying fire comes to live in each person and then continues to sanctify them, to purify them from within as the Holy Spirit teaches them to obey all the ordinances of God. And he does so by changing their hearts by, in in essence, burning away this heart of stone. So that's fire part two. Echo number six is fire part three. Uh, Fire was also God's judgment. So when God decided to destroy in the Old Testament, it was initially with a flood, but after that, it was with fire. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire from the sky was God's way of judging unbelievers and wicked nations. In Malachi chapter 4, for example, verse 1, he says, Look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble, which is kind of like um, hay that's going to be thrown into the fire. And the coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. What he's saying is the wicked will be thrown into the fire and burnt up. That is part of his judgment. The fire reminds everyone 
that a final judgment day is also coming. So yes, it echoes back to the Old Testament, but it also points forward to Revelation, which is much more explicit about this. We will either live in the fire of life or die in the eternal fire of hell. Everyone who has the Holy Spirit will have this fire of life. So Revelation 20 verse 15 says this, um, Anyone whose name is not found in the, uh, written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That is an echo and a foreshadowing of what is to come. Fire will consume. And T.S. Eliot wrote a great little poem about this called Little Gidding. And he says there, it's only short, so I'll read it for you. A dove descending breaks the air, this is the Holy Spirit, with flames of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharged from sin and error. Uh, the only hope or else to despair lies between the choice of pyre or pyre. So which, which fire will you be consumed by? To be redeemed from fire by fire, who then devised this torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove this intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. That is the choice of all human beings. We will either uh, trust in the work of Jesus and receive the fire of the Holy Spirit, this shirt of flame which we cannot get rid of, or we will be consumed by the lake of fire in Revelation. You will either be consumed by fire or fire. And then echo number seven is not fire, but language. So Pentecost is also this great undoing of God's judgment on mankind when he confuses the language way back at the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis 11, we see that the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and they settled there and they said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. And so what happens at Babylon, at Babel, is that the people, uh, they want to build their way up to God. But of course they can't do such a thing because they would be consumed by God's burning fire uh, because they're sinful, the, the spiritual gap still exists. And so what happens that God comes down, he says, let us go down, he is talking to himself and his spirit, and he went down and confuses the language of the people so that they could not work their way up to him, as if that could happen. But where are we now in redemption history? Sin has been dealt with. And in fact, 
the believers can come together again with God into the same place without being confined. And so God again takes the initiative, comes down and does the exact opposite thing that he did in Babel. Instead of bringing confusion in language, he brings understanding. And instead of letting the people build this uh, great big tower to build up to him, he gives understanding of language so that he can build up the church. And he doesn't stop people from speaking to each other to prevent them from entering his presence. Actually, he fixes the language gap precisely so that people can speak to him and enter into his presence. And notice that the languages they speak, the tongues, if you like, are human understandable languages here. This is not some ecstatic angelic speech that you babble, but these are human languages that people understood. Parthians, Medes, Cretans, all these people said, they're speaking about God's glory in my language. You cannot make an argument that being baptized with the Holy Spirit means you speak in this kind of ecstatic angel language tongues. Okay? It's pretty clear from the text. And so, the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost is a massive event. It fulfills so much of the Old Testament. It echoes back to all these bits and uh, and pieces that we saw, all these hints of the coming where God is now in a new era and we now live in a post-Pentecost world. And so life is different to before. We've seen the Holy Spirit's purpose, power to witness. We've seen the Holy Spirit's place in redemption history. He fulfills all these echoes and he points forward to the final fire. But then something happens, is that the Holy Spirit has a people, the church. So I want to just focus very briefly on this, and I read from verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced at the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, For this promise is for you and for all your children and for those who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words he testified and urged them, saying, Be saved from this uh, corrupt generation. And then um, towards the end there, he says in verse 42, Every day they... uh, Sorry, they... um, I missed my spot. Here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then at the end it says, and every day or daily the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And so what happens is once the Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches this great and convicting sermon. Uh, And he does so with great spiritual authority. Why? Because he has the power from the Holy Spirit to witness. And this is the same Peter who just before denied Jesus three times and ran away from him because he didn't want to be persecuted, but now the Holy Spirit has changed him because he has this power to witness. And so Peter gets on with the job. He does what he's been commissioned to do. Uh, Authority now lies with Christ, and so the breaking in of the kingdom uh, happens here as Peter takes on the job and starts making disciples. And so what happens is that since Jesus has authority, the breaking of the kingdom happens in power. Peter explains to the people who Jesus is, how they fit into the redemption story, and he was so convicting that 3,000 people were pierced to the heart 
They're convicted of their sins and they say, what should we do? And he says to them the same thing that every person who has ever become a Christian has needed to hear. Repent and be baptised. Jesus has forgiven your sins. If you repent and be baptised, if you believe in him, then you too will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for children and for those that are far off. Everyone that the Lord will call. And the church is built. About 3,000 people. And then we get this kind of mission statement description of what the church is supposed to do, what the church is like, what the church living in the Holy Spirit is characterised by. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the result of that was that the Lord added to their number daily. That's the purpose of this church That's the purpose of the church, capital C, globally. By the apostles' teaching, the proclamation of the word, the fellowship we have with one another, the people of God, and prayer. They talk about the breaking of the bread, the sacraments. And the result is that when we commit ourselves to these things, God adds to their number daily. That has always been the purpose of the church, that has always been the mission of the church and through the Holy Spirit that is also the power of the church. And that's also the mission and purpose of this church. As a believer, it should also be the purpose and mission of you as the church. And so I guess the question is, having received the Holy Spirit having received the power to witness, having received the gifts of spiritual gifts to build up the church and to preach uh, the good news and to proclaim Jesus' kingdom over the earth, having received that, all of you who are believers, is this your mission? Because that's why the Holy Spirit came. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will not uh, let us water down in our minds and hearts this great commission that you have for us to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship and to prayer. And that through that you will use us also to add daily those who are being saved. Lord, what a great lineage to be a part of. What a privilege to be part of that people. Lord, we pray that you will help us. Help us to get the skills we need, get the backbone we need in this society, even as we've seen this week. Give us a vision for your future and deep love for you and a love for those around us where we care enough for them to preach the gospel and to bear witness to Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit will fill us anew and give us this power to proclaim. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.